Chapter Eleven, Part Seven of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurieanne Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Eleven, Columbia, South Carolina, Part Seven. June Fourteenth. All things are against us. Memphis gone. Mississippi fleet annihilated, and we hear it all as stolidly apathetic as if it were a story of the English war against China, which happened a year or so ago. The sons of Mrs. John Julius Pringle have come. They were left at school in the north. A young U.G. is with them. They seem to have had adventures enough. Walked, waited, rode in boats, if boats they could find, swam rivers when boats there were none. Brave lads are they. One can but admire their pluck and energy. Mrs. Fisher of Philadelphia, nay Middleton, gave them money to make the attempt to get home. Stuart's cavalry have rushed through McClellan's lines and burned five of his transports. Jackson has been reinforced by 16,000 men, and they hope the enemy will be drawn from around Richmond, and the valley be the seat of war. John Chestnut is in Whiting's brigade, which has been sent to Stonewall. Mimson is with the Boykin Rangers, Company A, Number 1, we call it, and she has persistently wept ever since she heard the news. It is no child's play, she says, when you are with Stonewall. He doesn't play at soldiering. He doesn't take care of his men at all. He only goes to kill the Yankees. Wade Hampton is here, shot in the foot, but he knows no more about France than he does of the man in the moon. Wet blanket he is just now. Johnston badly wounded. Lee is king of spades. They are all once more digging for dear life. Unless we can reinforce Stonewall, the game is up. Our chiefs contrive to dampen and destroy the enthusiasm of all who go near them. So much entrenching and falling back destroys the morale of any army. This everlasting retreating, it kills the hearts of the men. Then we are scant of powder. James Chestnut is awfully proud of Leconte's powder manufactory here. Leconte knows how to do it. James Chestnut provides him the means to carry out his plans. Colonel Venable doesn't mince matters. If we do not deal a blow, a blow that will be felt, it will be soon all up with us. The Southwest will be lost to us. We cannot afford to shilly-shally much longer. Thousands are enlisting on the other side in New Orleans. Butler holds out inducements. To be sure, they are principally foreigners who want to escape starvation. Tennessee we may count on as gone, since we abandoned her at Corinth, Fort Pillow, and Memphis. A man must be sent there, or it is all gone now. You call a spade by that name, it seems, and not an agricultural implement? They call Mars Robert Old Spade Lee. He keeps them digging so. General Lee is a noble Virginian, respects something in this world. Caesar, call him Old Spade Caesar? As a soldier, he was as much above suspicion as he required his wife to be, as Caesar's wife, you know. If I remember Caesar's commentaries, he owns up to a lot of entrenching. You let Mars Robert alone. He knows what he is about. Tell us of the womenfolk at New Orleans. How did they take the fall of the city? They are an excitable race, the man from that city said. As my informant was standing on the levee, a daintily dressed lady picked her way, parasol in hand, toward him. She accosted him with great politeness, and her face was as placid and unmoved as in antebellum days. Her first question was, Will you be so kind as to tell me what is the last general order? 
No order that I know of, madam. General disorder prevails now. Ah, I see. And why are those persons flying and yelling so noisily and racing in the streets in that unseemly way? They are looking for a shell to burst over their heads at any moment. Ah. Then, with a courtesy of dignity and grace, she waved her parasol and departed, but stopped to arrange that parasol at a proper angle to protect her face from the sun. There was no vulgar haste in her movements. She tripped away as gracefully as she came. My informant had failed to discompose her by his fearful revelations. That was the one self-possessed soul then in New Orleans. Another woman drew near, so overheated and out of breath, she had barely time to say she had run miles of squares in her crazy terror and bewilderment, when a sudden shower came up. In a second she was cool and calm. She forgot all the questions she came to ask. "'My bonnet! I must save it at any sacrifice,' she said, and so turned her dress over her head and went off, forgetting her country's trouble and screaming for a cab. Went to see Mrs. Burroughs at the old Desisseur house. She has such a sweet face, such soft, kind, beautiful, dark gray eyes. Such eyes are a poem. No wonder she had a long love story. We sat in the piazza at twelve o'clock of a June day, the glorious southern sun shining its very hottest. But we were in a dense shade, magnolias in full bloom, ivy, vines of I know not what, and roses in profusion closed us in. It was a living wall of everything beautiful and sweet. In all this flower garden of a Columbia, that is the most delicious corner I have been in yet. Got from the Preston's French Library, Fanny, with a brilliant preface by Jules Janier. Now, then, I have come to the worst. There can be no worse book than Fanny. The lover is jealous of the husband. The woman is for the polyandry rule of life. She cheats both and refuses to break with either. But to criticize it, one must be as shameless as the book itself. Of course, it is clever to the last degree, or it would be kicked into the gutter. It is not nastier or coarser than Mrs. Stowe, but then it is not written in the interests of philanthropy. We had an unexpected dinner party today. First Wade Hampton came, and his wife. Then Mr. and Mrs. Rose. I remember that the late Colonel Hampton once said to me, a thing I thought odd at the time, Mrs. James Rose and I forget now who was the other, are the only two people on this side of the water who know how to give a state dinner. Mr. and Mrs. James Rose, if anybody wishes to describe old Carolina at its best, let them try their hands at painting these two people. Wade Hampton still limps a little, but he is rapidly recovering. Here is what he said, and he has fought so well that he is listened to. If we mean to play at war, as we play a game of chess, West Point tactics prevailing, we are sure to lose the game. They have every advantage. They can lose pawns ad infinitum to the end of time and never feel it. We will be throwing away all that we had hoped so much from, southern hot-headed dash, reckless gallantry, spirit of adventure, readiness to lead forlorn hopes. Mrs. Rose is Miss Sarah Parker's aunt. Somehow it came out when I was not in the room, but those girls tell me everything. It seems Miss Sarah said, the reason I cannot bear Mrs. Chestnut is that she laughs at everything and at everybody. If she saw me now, she would give me credit for some pretty hearty crying as well as laughing. It was a mortifying thing to hear about oneself all the same. General Preston came in and announced that Mr. Chestnut was in town. 
He had just seen Mr. Alfred Eugee, who came up on the Charleston train with him. Then Mrs. McCord came, and offered to take me back to Mrs. McMahon's to look him up. I found my room locked up. Lawrence said his master had gone to look for me at the Prestons. Mrs. McCord proposed we should further seek for my errant husband. At the door we met Governor Pickens, who showed us telegrams from the President of the most important nature. The Governor added, And I have one from James Chestnut, but I hear he has followed it so closely, coming on its heels, as it were, that I need not show you that one. You don't look interested at the sound of your husband's name, said he. Is that his name? asked I. I supposed it was James. My advice to you is to find him, for Mrs. Pickens says he was last seen in the company of two very handsome women, and now you may call him any name you please. We soon met. The two beautiful dames Governor Pickens threw in my teeth were some ladies from Rafton Creek, almost neighbors, who lived near Camden. By way of pleasant remark to Wade Hampton, Oh, General, the next battle will give you a chance to be Major General. I was very foolish to give up my legion, he answered gloomily. Promotion don't really annoy many people. Mary Gibson says her father writes to them that they may go back. He thinks now that the Confederates can hold Richmond. Gloria in excelsis. Another personal defeat. Little Kate said, Oh, Cousin Mary, why don't you cultivate heart? They say at Kirkwood that you had better let your brains alone a while and cultivate heart. She had evidently caught up a phrase and repeated it again and again for my benefit. So that is the way they talk of me. The only good of loving anyone with your whole heart is to give that person the power to hurt you. June 24th. Mr. Chestnut, having missed the Secessionville fight by half a day, was determined to see the one around Richmond. Footnote. The Battle of Secessionville occurred on James Island, in the harbor of Charleston, June 16, 1862. End footnote. He went off with General Cooper and Wade Hampton. Blanton Duncan sent them for a luncheon on board the cars, ice, wine, and every manner of good thing. In all this death and destruction, the women are the same. Chatter, patter, clatter. Oh, the Charleston refugees are so full of airs, there is no sympathy for them here. Oh, indeed, that is queer. They are not half as exclusive as these Hamptons and Prestons. The airs these people do give themselves. Airs, airs, laughed Mrs. Bartow, parodying Tennyson's charge of the light brigade. Airs to the right of them, airs to the left of them, someone had blundered. Volleyed and thundered rhymes, but is out of place. The worst of all airs came from a Democratic landlady, who was asked by Mrs. President Davis to have a carpet shaken, and shook herself with rage as she answered, You know, madam, you need not stay here if my carpet or anything else does not suit you. John Chestnut gives us a spirited account of their ride around McClellan. I sent the letter to his grandfather. The women ran out screaming with joyful welcome as soon as they caught sight of our soldiers' gray uniforms, ran to them bringing handfuls and armfuls of food. One gray-headed man, after preparing a hasty meal for them, knelt and prayed as they snatched it, as you may say. They were in the saddle from Friday until Sunday. They were used up. So were their horses. Johnny writes for clothes and more horses. Miss S. C. says, No need to send any more of his fine horses to be killed or captured by the Yankees. Wait and see how the siege of Richmond ends. 
The horses will go all the same, as Johnny wants them. June 25th. I forgot to tell of Mrs. Pickens' reception for General Hampton. My Mim, dear, described it all. The governess, tut, Mim, that is not the right name for her. She is not a teacher. Never mind, it is easier to say than the governor's wife. Madame la gouvernante was suggested. Why, that is worse than the other. Met him at the door, took his crutch away, putting his hand upon her shoulder instead. That is the way to greet heroes, she said. Her blue eyes were aflame, and in response poor Wade smiled, and smiled until his face hardened into a fixed grin of embarrassment and annoyance. He is a simple-mannered man, you know, and does not want to be made much of by women. The butler was not in plain clothes, but wore, as the other servants did, magnificent livery brought from the court of St. Petersburg, one mass of gold embroidery, etc., they had champagne and Russian tea, the latter from a samovar made in Russia. Little Moses was there. Now, for us, they have never put their servants into Russian livery, nor paraded little Moses under our noses. But I must confess, the Russian tea and champagne set before us left nothing to be desired. How did General Hampton bear his honors? Well, to the last he looked as if he wished they would let him alone. Met Mr. Ashmore, fresh from Richmond. He says Stonewall is coming up behind McClellan. And here comes the tug of war. He thinks we have so many spies in Richmond, they may have found out our strategic movements, and so may circumvent them. Mrs. Bartow's story of a clever Miss Toombs. So many men were in love with her, and the courtship, while it lasted, of each one was as exciting and bewildering as a fox chase. She liked the fun of the run, but she wanted something more than to know a man was in mad pursuit of her. That he should love her, she agreed, but she must love him, too. How was she to tell? Yet she must be certain of it before she said yes. So as they sat by the lamp, she would look at him and inwardly ask herself, Would I be willing to spend the long winter evenings forever after, sitting here darning your old stockings? Never, Echo answered. No, no, a thousand times no. So each had to make way for another. June 27th. We went in a body, half a dozen ladies, with no man on escort duty, for they are all in the army, to a concert. Mrs. Pickens came in. She was joined soon by Secretary Moses and Mr. Fallon. Dr. Berrien came to our relief. Nothing could be more execrable than the singing. Financially, the thing was a great success, for though the audience was altogether feminine, it was a very large one. Telegram from Mr. Chestnut. Safe in Richmond. That is, if Richmond be safe, with all the power of the United States of America battering at her gates. Strange not a word from Stonewall Jackson, after all. Dr. Gibson telegraphs his wife. Stay where you are. Terrible battle looked for here. Footnote. Malvern Hill, the last of the Seven Days' Battles, was fought near Richmond on the James River, July 1, 1862. The Federals were commanded by McClellan, and the Confederates by Lee. End footnote. Decca is dead. That poor little darling. Immediately after her baby was born, she took it into her head that Alex was killed. He was wounded, but those around had not told her of it. She surprised them by asking, does anyone know how the battle has gone since Alex was killed? She could not read for a day or so before she died. Her head was bewildered. 
but she would not let anyone else touch her letters. So she died with several unopened ones in her bosom. Mrs. Singleton, Decca's mother, fainted dead away, but she shed no tears. We went to the house and saw Alex's mother, a daughter of Langdon Chevis. Annie was with us. She said, This is the saddest thing for Alex. No, said his mother, death is never the saddest thing. If he were not a good man, that would be a far worse thing. Annie, in utter amazement, whimpered, But Alex is so good already. Yes, seven years ago the death of one of his sisters that he dearly loved made him a Christian. That death in our family was worth a thousand lives. One needs a hard heart now. Even old Mr. Shand shed tears. Mary Barnwell sat as still as a statue, as white and stony. Grief which can relieve itself by tears is a thing to pray for, said the Reverend Mr. Shand. Then came a telegram from Hampton. All well, so far we are successful. Robert Barnwell had been telegraphed for. His answer came. Can't leave here. Greg is fighting across the Chickahominy. Said Alex's mother. My son Alex may never hear this sad news. And her lips settled rigidly. Go on. What else does Hampton say? asked she. Lee has one wing of the army, Stonewall the other. Annie Hampton came to tell us the latest news, that we have abandoned James Island and are fortifying Morris Island. And now, she says, if the enemy will be so kind as to wait, we will be ready for them in two months. Reverend Mr. Shand and that pious Christian woman, Alex's mother, who looks into your very soul with those large and lustrous blue eyes of hers, agreed that the Yankees, even if they took Charleston, would not destroy it. I think they will, sinner that I am. Mr. Shand remarked to her, Madam, you have two sons in the army. Alex's mother replied, I have had six sons in the army. I now have five. There are people here too small to conceive of any larger business than quarreling in the newspapers. One laughs at squibs in the papers now, in such times as these, with the wolf at our doors. Men safe in their closets, writing fiery articles, denouncing those who are at work, are beneath contempt. Only critics with muskets on their shoulders have the right to speak now, as Trenum said the other night. In a pouring rain we went to that poor child's funeral, to Decca's. They buried her in the little white frock she wore when she engaged herself to Alex, and which she again put on for her bridal about a year ago. She lies now in the churchyard, in sight of my window. Is she to be pitied? She said she had had months of perfect happiness. How many people can say that? So many of us live their long, dreary lives, and then happiness never comes to meet them at all. It seems so near, and yet it eludes them forever. End of chapter 11, part 7